0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Andy Davidson to the program today. Andy holds an MFA in Fiction from the University of Mississippi, and his debut novel, In the Valley of the Sun, was nominated for the 2017 Bram Stoker Award in Superior Achievement in a First Novel, This Is Horror's Novel of the Year, and the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival's First Book Award. Today we'll be talking about his second novel, The Boatman's Daughter, which was published by MCD by FSG Originals. Andy, the epigraph for the book is from The Tempest, and the river in the story is called The Prosper, so I'm guessing that's not a coincidence. Not a coincidence, yeah. So what part of The Tempest tale from Shakespeare really resonates with you that you wanted to use that as a touchstone here? It
1: was two elements of The Tempest. It was magic and the idea of isolation, magic in an isolated place. And characters. Of course, all the characters are exiled on an island, and there's a witch, and there's the character of Caliban, who's the offspring of the witch, and then there's the character of Miranda. And Miranda in The Tempest, I've always felt lacks agency. She is pretty much subject to the whims of her father's machinations. And I kind of wanted to have a central female heroine who was not subject to a fate that was sort of dictated by her father. And so that's kind of the, the major aspect of the Tempest there. And in terms of the character of Caliban, there's also a, a painting by the artist Hogarth of Caliban. He features in the painting and he is a very pitiable figure in the painting. He's almost childlike in the way that he's depicted He has webbed feet, scales, a bundle of sticks on his back. He has a misshapen brow and face, and there's something very sad about him. I'm not sure that the character in Shakespeare's play, while pitiable, is an entirely identifiable character for most of us. He's pretty nasty in some of the things that he does. So I wanted to, as I was flipping the character of Miranda, I also wanted to kind of flip the character of Caliban a little bit and have... Something that I felt was more in tune with the Hogarth painting that that resonated with me, a child who's very much a magical creature that that we can feel empathy for and not just a monster.
0: Now, where would Nash County, Arkansas be if it actually existed?
1: It would be in southwest Arkansas. Let's say Nash County is actually... Um, About where Miller County is? It's Miller County, yeah. it's It's around Falk, Arkansas. So you probably know the story about the Falk Monster, the right. Monster mm-hmm. right? I came across that story when I was 12 years old for the first time. I was watching it late night on TBS. The Legend of Boggy Buggy Creek, Creek yeah. right, came on. I was staying at a, a hotel with my parents in Monroe, Louisiana at the time. We were at the Holodome, which no longer exists <laughs> So I had a little room separate from theirs where I could stay up late and watch movies and I was watching The Legend of Boggy Creek. I had never seen it before and I had never seen a story that was set so near home that was frightening in the way that was frightening to me as a kid. And I've since seen it many times and of course it's in many ways kind of a, a silly movie, but you know, it draws upon some truth of of what was happening in the region, but of course it's it's fictionalized. But It does, I think, capture the place very well, that part of Arkansas, that kind of wild and sort of tangled backwater part of Arkansas that's on the border of Texas and Louisiana. And I wanted to do that in my second book. So I thought about The Legend of Boggy Creek quite a bit while I was writing this. And of course, the Falk Monster was always ever present in my mind in the early formative stages of the book which ultimately kind of morphed into the little fish character and the Caliban thread got tied into that as well. So So the falcon monster, sometimes
0: they call it a skunk ape. Right. The Bigfoot Uh, skunk ape ape myth. A Sasquatch type character. Yes. And there's a more real horrific thing that happened in Falk, Arkansas. It was a later on. Home of Tony Alamo, who Mm -hmm. Tony and Susan Alamo had a cult in Western Arkansas around the time period of this. uh, I'm guessing they were an inspiration for the Cottons.
1: They were up to a point, not so much the time that they actually spent in Falk. I think she She, died in 1982. Yeah, and he's since died in prison, I believe. But his compound was raided in 2008. I want to say by the FBI, and he he went to jail for trafficking, and you know. Miners across state lines or something horrible like that. So it wasn't so much his actions during the time that he was at Falk as it was when I started digging into that was the impetus. I had read that story and thought, well, okay, that's another piece of this. What if there is a a cult in this town as well? So you've got the idea of the land and the magic that's rooted in the earth, kind of competing or, or set in opposition against the magic, supposedly, I say that with sort of air quotes of a religious cult but in terms of the alamos or tony alamo i started researching them and what i really found fascinating about them was their ministry in the late 1970s was very theatrical it was very broad it was very much rooted in southern gospel a kind of country western aesthetic which I kind of found fascinating, you know, when you look at Tony and his history, he changed his name. I don't remember much about his past before he came to Nashville, but he was a fashion designer, I think, for a while for mm-hmm. country western stars and he had been out in Los Angeles trying to that, pr- produce that's right. music. That's right. That's right. And so there's this sense of like fingers in a lot of different pies trying to find a graft that works, trying to find a scheme that takes hold. So that was very much an inspiration for Billy Cotton. Susan Alamo, I would say, was an inspiration insofar as her presence in that early ministry. When I looked at some videos online, I found Susan to be fascinating in her kind of centeredness. I'm not saying that anything she was saying was valid necessarily, but there was a presence there that I thought was she very was strong. a much more
0: effective preacher than Tony was. Right,
1: And she seemed possibly even more sincere. I don't know if she was or not. But so I took that idea, and there was an image I found online from one of their Grand old Opry shows of Tony standing behind her with his hands on her shoulders. And, of course, she's got this white platinum blonde hair, and she's wearing a red cloak. I think her eyes are open and his eyes are closed, and it's just a very gothic image. And so I thought, well, there's... There's a lot there that you can play around with and even, you know, make up, but there was definitely some inspiration there. Yeah.
0: And it's because of the Cottons that Hiram Crabtree and his daughter Miranda go out on a very stormy night in 1968. Right. The other aspect of the book is, of course,
1: the witch character of Iskra, who's lived in this swamp for a long time. Part of her trade has been being a midwife and, and birthing children. I guess with her Slavic heritage of doula. Right. Yes. So when they bring her out of the swamp on that night, they bring her to Billy Cotton's mansion, and that's in the opening of the
0: book. I suppose you could say bad things happen from there. The uh, epigraph is what's past is prologue, and that's literally the case in this book. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The past is the prologue, yeah. They take Iskra to the Cotton's house, and Lena Cotton has a troublesome pregnancy. Yes. It's the first chapter, so I think you can share a little bit more oh, what, sure. what sure, happens sure. there.
1: Well, what happens is Hiram Crabtree is the boatman, and so his job is to take people up and down the river. Usually, in my mind, this is not necessarily in the book, but in my mind, usually his ferries are people who are tourists, who are out to see the swamp, fishermen, businessmen, those types of people. He also does a side business transporting Iskra. And on this night, he takes her to the mansion where Lena is giving birth. And we sort of see the scene play out through the eyes of 11-year-old Miranda, Hiram's daughter. And it's a very horrific scene for her. She doesn't really know what's happening, but she sees a man emerge from the bedroom who is Billy Cotton. He's covered in blood. Now he has something in his hands that she can't see, which we later learn is a razor, straight razor. And then she sees the witch emerge from the bedroom and they've heard a woman scream and now there is no more sound coming from the room. And when Iskra walks out, she's carrying a bread bowl and there's something in the bread bowl and it's covered by a white pillowcase that's stained with blood. And so we as the reader can sort of draw our inferences about what's in that that bread bowl. And that's sort of the path that Uh, Miranda finds herself on discovering what's in the bread bowl that night and at the same time losing her father in a mysterious and sort of tragic way in the opening.
0: I'll admit, I'm sorry to take away from the kind of the drama of the scene, but when you said bread bowl, I was imagining like a bread bowl soup from Panera. (laughs) So so what kind of bread bowl was you actually imagining?
1: Yeah, it's one of those uh, sort of wooden bread bowls that are kind of old fashioned and hand hewn. My dad, his grandmother used to make biscuits in one of these types of bowls. They're pretty large. Are they very shallow, kind of broad? They can be. This one that I'm thinking of had a pretty wide diameter and, you know, you could probably put quite a few biscuits in it, but she would need her dough in the bread bowl. She would put the dough in there and work it and put the flour in there with the dough. And so it's a very kind of utilitarian old world sort of object, which I think in the book has connections with Iskra's mother. And so there's this idea of a kind of maybe matriarchal lineage of magic there as well, and the handing down of one object and another and
0: there's a great bit of chaos that happens at this point, and later on in the book, there are moments of action and, and mm-hmm. chaos. And I have to say, I found it very effective the way you did. I mean, I felt like my head was swimming just the way things were zipping around so much it really felt like you know, in the heat of the battle. Thank you. <laughs> so in writing an action scene like that, what are your goals and what are you trying to get across?
1: Well, I think the goal with every page, not just in an action scene, is to keep the reader turning the page, Right. So when you're writing an action scene, my goal is always to somehow mimic the pace of the story through the language. So the language imitates the pace so that if the reader were actually to read this out loud, he or she would find themselves short of breath, perhaps, or, or kind of taken along in a rush. So that's kind of always in the back of my mind with that is is how do you shape the language in a scene like that to keep the pace moving really quickly, but also not sacrifice? What I sort of view as an important part of writing and and books, which is the language itself, not to take away anything from thrillers or, you know, sort of fast-paced books. I think Neil Gaiman had a term that I really liked. He called it, I want to say, American Transparent, was the kind of term for some books that the language doesn't get in the way and you you don't even notice it. It's just transporting you into the story and moving you along. And that's a great thing. But when I read, I read in part for language. It's kind of just built into me as a reader. And so as a writer, I always try to write the book I'd want to read. It would definitely be a book that does not sacrifice language for pacing and that sort of thing.
0: Well, and I think, A more literary approach if we want to call it that right uh, where you concentrate on the language more is really effective in building dread i think that's something that dread is kind of almost the opposite of plot atmosphere yeah and uh, that how do you manifest dread with just words Mm -hmm.
1: yeah that's a good question i always find the most difficult questions to answer are the questions about how do you do a thing that you do as a writer i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i mean i could try to kind of explain it but i think for me dread is a feeling it's a sense of inevitability something is going to happen we know it's going to happen it's going to be bad there's something bad coming that's dread and so in terms of how the language builds that I think I would say that the language has to hook in with the emotion that a character is feeling so the world is reflected in that character's point of view So in the opening of the book, for example, when we're with Miranda in the boat and she's waiting on her father to come back, he's disappeared into the woods with the witch. She knows this is strange. She knows this is not right. And all of the environment and nature is sort of conspiring to reinforce that, right? The descriptions and the language of these trees that are unfamiliar, this water that she's never been across before. I think there's a descriptor of trees in the water deadfalls in the water that are bobbing like coffins. So, you know, you choose your metaphors to kind of reflect the feeling of dread. So coffins bobbing in the water is a
0: pretty frightening image if you're an 11-year-old girl in a strange place. In the sense, nature can be terrifying that it just doesn't care about us. Mm -hmm. It's indifferent. But in this case, nature actually has plans against the main characters, right. which that's even more terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nature is sentient in this. Yeah. And has a bad attitude. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> well, there's a famous Werner Herzog quote from, I think it was when he was making Higuire, The Wrath of God, or it might've been when he was working on Fitzcarraldo.
0: Oh, that was horrific. Yeah. In its own
1: way. He talks about nature. All of nature is chaos and murder. And I've always liked that quote, especially the murder part, you know, the chaos I'm not so sure about, like, yes, there are things that happen randomly in nature, but yeah, I like the idea that what if nature weren't chaotic? What if nature had a plan and that plan was murder? (laughs) (laughs) Well, everyone dies, (laughs) (laughs) right? Or or I guess every man dies. Every, every man dies. Yeah.
0: Next up, 10 years have passed by. And we see Miranda 10 years later and her father is still missing.
1: And at that point in the story, I think there's a transition that we kind of move away from Miranda's perspective and Miranda's introduced through the perspectives of two other characters who have become her associates in her new life. And one of them is a man named Cook that she's working with. He's sort of the contact person that she's ferrying drugs up the river to and she's returning the money back downriver to agents who work for Billy Cotton, pretty nefarious people. One of whom was actually a character that we feel great sympathy with and are connected to. And that's John Avery, who is kind of the last he and his wife and their baby are sort of the last surviving members of this cult on the river. And it's
0: the last days of Billy Cotton's ministry, so to speak. Cook at the beginning insists that Miranda take a gun with her. Yes. And her family is not a gun family.
1: No. In fact, in the prologue, I think uh, it's established that the crabtrees are bow hunters, always have been. Yeah. Uh, Miranda doesn't like the gun. She doesn't trust the gun. It's not a part of her in the way that a bow is.
0: But it can be difficult going against people with guns when all you have is a bow. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You to have a lot of other things on your side as well.
1: Well, and that's what you want, right? You want your characters to face difficulties that seem insurmountable. Yeah.
0: Have some asymmetry there.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of boring to me to think about putting a gun in Miranda's hand and having her use it. I, I feel like Miranda's just not the kind of character who would respond to a gun. It's not a thing she trusts. And she has a problem with trust In the last 11 years or so, as she's been living her life on the river, I think that trust has been hard to come by. And so even when Cook makes this gesture of friendship toward her, a kind of protective gesture saying, you're going to need this, take it with you, she's
0: distrustful of it. And in the past 10 years, she's formed a friendship with Iskra, Mm -hmm. the witch, Mm -hmm. and has kind of a surrogate parent in a way, but what is their relationship? It seems a little bit different now that she's become an adult. She's more of a
1: caretaker now, I think. She is much less a daughter to the witch than she is a sister to, as it's revealed, magical child who was born that night when she was 11. She's become his sister. She's become his teacher. She's become basically his everything, I think. And and he's pretty much
0: her everything as well. So, In dealing with magic in what is otherwise a a realistic set book, what are the challenges you face in trying to get people to suspend their disbelief in in the way that it it works?
1: I think that one of the challenges you have is dealing with magic in a way that it doesn't seem like magic. I remember when The Fellowship of the Ring came out in the early 2000s, Peter Jackson's adaptation of the book, uh, the film. One of the things that Jackson said was he was not interested in wizards who had duels with beams of light shooting out of wands and... and Pew, pew, pew. Pew, 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 right. So I agree with that. I think that it's much more interesting to see two wizards punching each other with magic than it is to see them flinging light at each other or whatever. So in this particular case, when writing about a witch, I think... I wanted to root her in the earth. I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to seem like it was born out of the physical world and not out of something that was ethereal or that could be pulled out of the air. So magic is about blood. It's about bones. It's about rituals.
0: It has a price. It has
1: a price. Exactly. Yeah. And it comes up out of the soil too. It's part of the earth. It's part of the natural world in a way. One of the things in the book that, I found, and and I looked a lot into Slavic folklore. I, I researched magic and Russian divination and those types of things. And one of the things that I really liked was this idea of songs and language and how those are used to basically create magic, curses and whatnot, the evil eye, that sort of thing. In Iskra's case, one of the characteristics that I wanted to kind of build into her was that when she was a young girl, she used to sing these laments over the dead uh, and she was paid for it. And in doing so, there's a kind of conjuring through language, which is probably as close to like ethereal magic as the book gets where you're kind of casting your voice out into the void and, and hoping to help someone have a kind of peaceful crossing into that afterworld or whatever. But for the most part, the magic is rooted in things that exist in the real physical world. And so that to me was the challenge that I had, that I thought if I did it right, it would keep the reader engaged and the reader would never check out and say, well, this is unbelievable.
0: Music is such, I think, as close as humans get to magic Hmm. and that it bypasses the analytical mind. It bypasses the world of language Mm -hmm. and it affects us. It is extremely human, but it is not analytical.
1: Right. It's centered right there in the chest in the, where the lungs are and in the heart. And yeah, you feel it, but you don't necessarily understand it.
0: Yeah. There is a, a concept, perhaps even a being in the area what, what is it? is it leshy or leshy? Or? Leshy. Yeah. Leshy. What is the leshy?
1: Well, in Russian folklore, the leshy is traditionally a male forest spirit. And in the book, the leshy is simply the word that Iskra knows to hang on whatever it is that's out there in the swamp. It's the closest representation she can think of to whatever this force or power is in the swamp. So I wanted to kind of play around with the notion a little bit that the words that we have for things are not necessarily what they are. And so in her case, you know, and and I think in our own cases, too, when we have faith or we believe in things, we bring a lot of ourselves to that faith and to that belief. And so in her case, she's bringing her own history and her own baggage as a woman who came from a, a family that believed in this particular folklore And she's putting that on the swamp, applying that lens to the swamp.
0: Names are important in the story. And when Charlie Riddle Mm -hmm. calls Miranda Little Sister, that is a name she does not cotton to at all. Right. Pardon the pun. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Charlie Riddle, formerly known as Handsome Charlie. Right. Is in the area. He's a constable and the head of the crime organization, essentially, because in small towns, everybody's got to wear a couple of hats.
1: Charlie is a nasty piece of work. I based him loosely off of Orson Welles' character in Touch of Evil, his character there, who is in some ways a a pitiable character too. I think every monster in the book, whether a good monster or a bad monster, you try as a writer to make them pitiable or empathetic in some way. That's sort of my main goal in horror, if I'm a horror writer, is to not necessarily terrify the reader so much as bring the reader in and the horror comes out of the feelings that we feel toward monsters who are essentially us. Humanize Frankenstein. Right. The Frankenstein. Movie. Exactly. Exactly. But in Charlie Riddle's case, he's barely pitiable. He's barely empathetic. He's pretty monstrous. He does horrible things.
0: And so he's part of this drug organization. And you mentioned John Avery earlier. Yes. He's pretty much the the horticulturalist of this weed operation.
1: Yeah. John is the artist. John is the one who had a vision and saw what a thing could be. He's the sculptor who saw the marble and carved out of it his operation. And so he feels a certain pride and proprietary feeling for the operation. And Charlie Riddle doesn't care much about that at all. It's all about what Charlie wants.
0: It's almost like being the writer on a movie. It is.
1: <laughs> that's, that's funny.
0: <laughs> I was just wondering why they used glass jars to transport their product. And it seemed like it was a, a little bit of high danger. Not, not, a, not a great idea, right? Yeah. So they, they
1: move it around in the um, igloo ice chests on the water, which makes it pretty safe. But, but then when they take it out, it's being transported in these glass jars. You know... And, at this moment, I think I, I had never actually thought about what a bad idea that was. Well, at but one point, I, the, I, a jar does break in yeah, the story, they and do. they say we
0: can't use it because of the glass. Right,
1: right, right. I just It, it just seemed to me like I, I never thought about... <laughs> What a dumb idea that was. But I will say that I think the reason I chose the, basically the mason jars is that, you know, it's kind of a funny little people in the South. What do we put things in? We put them in mason jars if we're going to can things and stow things. And, and there is a lot in the story, too, in the novel with the idea of things on shelves, jars, and what we put away. You know, so there's a little bit of that. But, but yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs>
0: Sorry. I guess we should probably talk about Little Fish mm-hmm. a, a little bit more. Yeah. He is not your everyday 10-year-old boy in southern Arkansas. And
1: in some ways he is. That was part of what I wanted when I was writing him was that he's a magical creature. He's of the earth. Nothing is ever eaten by deer in his garden. You know, he gets no infestations. Everything he does is green and good. But he is, in many ways, a regular kid. He likes to read comic books, and his sister brings them to him. He doesn't speak. He's he's a character who, uh, because of some things that happened in the past, that first night when he's born, he doesn't have the ability to hear his own voice and speak. And so his sister Miranda has taught him sign language through a book that she got from the library, which in part carries down from her father, who was partially deaf in one ear. So... He's kind of the heart of the book in a lot of ways. I think he's the character that ultimately everything kind of hinges on. Miranda's choices are based solely to protect him. And later, of
0: course, another character who comes in as well, another child. But he's the heart. Now, you mentioned earlier in The Tempest where Miranda didn't have enough agency. Mm -hmm. And while this is not a YA book, it's very typical in YA books to make parents disappear or die in order to give a, a child agency. So how has Miranda kind of gotten past these past 10 years how she lived?
1: Well, Miranda is resourceful. I think one of the things that she immediately realizes after her father disappears is that she's got to make her own way now. She has a store that, by default, she just sort of inherits the operation of, a mercantile on the river, a bait store, general store. And she keeps that going for a while. The old men who frequent the store keep coming in. Eventually, when Hiram's body is not found, they kind of start to fall off. Miranda finds new work on the river, basically. And she's approached by John Avery and Billy Cotton in the book to be essentially a farrier for their operation, which is all kind of left a little vague as to to why they approach her. To me, that wasn't really so much important, so much as important as it was that she made the choice to do it, that she needed uh, the money, that she had this child who was living in the swamp with the witch to support, and so she made some choices. And so Miranda's choices are pretty much at the center of everything that
0: happens to her. And so many people in the story seem to be at this time feeling this is the time to get out right we should leave town we should get out of here this is yeah uh, this this place doesn't have good for us in the future and just like every cop movie where a partner is getting ready to retire (laughs) (laughs) two days of
1: retirement yeah 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 this is the last three days pretty much in the life of of this whole place in a way which is what I set out to do I wanted to kind of tell a story over a compressed time period That was about the end of things, but also
0: maybe new beginnings as well. Now, in your previous book, you said in West Texas, Mm -hmm. this one kind of in a swampy area in Southern Arkansas. So, I mean, you're not terribly far from each other, but the landscapes couldn't be more different.
1: Right. One's brown, one's green.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The dirt is very different from the water. Right.
1: Well, it always seemed to me that the first book, In the Valley of the Sun, was a vampire novel, which at the time that I was promoting it, I never talked about it as a vampire novel because- the word vampire never actually shows up in the book. And so you you try to kind of stay away from saying it was a vampire novel because that carries with it a huge set of preconceptions and that people, you know,
0: But the paperback cover kind of gives it away more.
1: Right. It does. Yeah, you're right. So now I do talk about it as a vampire novel, but I say that in a, you know, a very respectful way of vampire novels. And I think life as a vampire is hard. And so one of the things I wanted to do when I was writing the book was, put him in the most inhospitable environment that a vampire could live in, which to me would be the West Texas desert, you know, at least in America. That's not a friendly place if you need to stay away from the sun and drink
0: blood. And both books are kind of set in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. So what about that time period attracts you for your stories? In part, it's the absence of technology,
1: the absence of cell phones, which, which seems kind of like, on the one hand, are really like maybe sort of sad reason to set something in the past just because you don't want to deal with cell phones as a writer. But it's also, we live in a very disconnected age from ourselves because of technology, because of cell phones. I wanted to write about a time that I didn't necessarily remember because I was born in 78. So I'm writing about a time period when I wasn't really yet a formed human being, you know, in terms of my consciousness. It was still shaping itself, and I was just like two or three years old maybe. But I remember the 80s, and I remember what it was like to live without these things. And it seems like a better time in the sense that we were more connected to the people around us and less connected to our phones, and we didn't all have mirrors we were gazing into constantly. So that's part of it, and part of it is also just... There's something really cool about that time period in terms of the films that are influences on me, you know, the 70s and the 80s. I think about movies like Taxi Driver. I think about Tinder Mercies. Those are just amazing stories that you can't tell now because of the world changing and moving on. Or if you do tell them, you'd have to tell them very differently. So that's it. In
0: the story, there's a solar eclipse happens at one point. And it made me think of the solar eclipse of 1979. I was in elementary school at that point, and that was just an amazing thing. They made us come out into the hallways of the elementary school, sit on the floor, and they had a TV on a card at the end of the hall, and we all watched the, <laughs> the solar eclipse happen yeah. up in the Seattle area.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of a funny thing. I did some research into that because I had known I wanted to have an eclipse. And so when I learned that there was the eclipse in 79 – I kind of tried to kind of play with the timeline of the book just a little bit and tweaked it maybe a year or two so that it would line up with that. I think originally it was set in 77. So I didn't become aware of that until later. And part of that was we had the eclipse in, what was it, 2017? But yeah, we had that event. And I remember in Georgia, you know, we saw it for a couple of hours. It was pretty strong. And and one of the things that I noticed that it was a detail like if it was it was like the universe smiles on you. Oh, you're writing about an eclipse. Well, here's an eclipse. And there were just a number of details that I had not known about because I don't I think I'd seen an eclipse when I was a kid, but I don't really remember it all that much. So as a writer, you want to get as close to you as you can to the real thing. And yeah, there were these great details like the shapes that the sun makes when it gets cast through the leaves of of oak trees and things. It's these little moon shapes on the sidewalk and which is kind of wonderful, you know? And so I tried to put some of that into the book as well.
0: That recent eclipse uh, went over to near Nashville to watch and I will go to every other eclipse I can for the rest of my life. It was so amazing.
1: Yeah, it was great. Yeah, we we went home, my wife and I did, from work, and we just sat in the backyard and watched it. Yeah, it was great. And the cats were kind of fascinated by it too. And I remember one of the things that was so interesting was that that was a year that there were a lot of cicadas in the trees, and cicadas usually ramp up at night. And when we were sitting in the backyard, suddenly this chorus of cicadas started. As the day got a little darker, and I just thought, "Wow, that's going in the book. That's amazing." So, yeah.
0: We were sitting out in the front yard, <laughs> just having a good time at my girlfriend's house, and the mailman was driving through. We said, "The eclipse." And he goes, <laughs> "Yeah." Just talking with neither
1: rain nor lack of shine.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. So are you working on a book number three right now? I am working on a third book right now. My contract with MCD FSG is for two books. So The Boatman's Daughter is the first of those. And then there's another paperback original that's coming out. Don't know when yet, but I'm kind of in the neighborhood of finishing a draft of it, but I'm doing some rewrites on it. So don't like to talk too much about it, but when I pitched in the Valley of the sun, I always talked about it as taxi driver meets tender mercies by way of near dark. So I always use film. So if I were to sort of talk about the book I'm working on now, I would just say it's true grit meets apocalypse now by way of Neil Marshall's dog soldiers. (laughs) Oh, so oh, (laughs)
0: there you go. Well, and I saw on your Twitter feed that you, had posted a couple of times recently about Ginger Snaps. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that yeah, is like yeah. my favorite. Ginger Snaps is favorite amazing. Favorite werewolf movie. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Werewolf movies are hard to come by that are really good. Ginger Snaps is one of them. American Werewolf in London's one of them. Dog Soldiers is one of them. But yeah, that's pretty much the top three for me. Yeah. Ginger Snaps is the best by far. It's great. Uh, Ginger Snaps 2? No. Not so much. 3? Uh, yeah. I enjoyed. The the one that's the, uh, the kind of strange flashback to mm-hmm. the the old west. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, to the, was it the
1: There's Wendigos? A, the Wendigo, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I don't remember a lot about that one. I just remember the setting was interesting.
0: Uh, I thought it, was, it looked good. I thought it was mm-hmm. before they had a lot more money and right. had a real nice look to it. Yeah. mentioning in Near Dark, that's probably my favorite vampire movie.
1: Yeah, it's another one of those situations where nobody talks about vampires in the movie. It's kind of neat. It's very clear that they are, obviously, but that word never gets thrown around. It's pretty clever, I think.
0: Well, I think that happens, especially in the the zombie era. They right. try every every other word in the world except for
1: a zombie. To describe well, there, what's there's going even out. the joke in Shaun of the Dead where he says they're zombies, and I think it's um, it's like don't say that. What the Z word? Don't say that. <laughs> it's just too ridiculous. So yeah.
0: Well, Andy, I want to thank you so much for stopping by today. It's been very much a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Andy Davidson is the author of the novel, The Boatman's Daughter, which is published by MCD by FSG Originals. I'm Stephen Usri, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at WYPLFM at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee. 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 license for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.